Our morning text is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Please follow along with me as I read. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave us to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Biblical history is unintelligible apart from the doctrine of creation. The record of events from Adam and Eve through the history of Israel the coming of Jesus Christ, the emergence of the church, and the consummation at the end make no sense at all apart from this truth. God the Father, through the agency of the Son, created all things out of nothing by the word of his command. And he sustains in being all things presently by that same word in such a way that every new being that comes into existence is his own peculiar creation. Apart from that, biblical history makes no sense. And the reason that I say it doesn't make sense is because biblical history is the record of God acting as an owner of history. 
He subjects creation to futility. He disperses the nations and appoints their boundaries and their periods of time. He chooses people, Israel, and gives them an irrevocable promise that they'll have a land and a great posterity. He sends famine or gives prosperity. He gives life and he takes it away. He lifts up one king and casts down another. He sends at the fullness of time his son into the world and according to his plan and foreknowledge brings him to the cross, raises him from the dead, seats him at his right hand, establishes his church in the world and one day will come in unimaginable splendor to save and to judge and to display in all the world the fullness of his glory. Biblical history is the record of a God who acts like an owner, who assumes absolute rights over the world, over nations, and over individuals, and who has a purpose and a plan that cannot be thwarted. So it makes no sense to try to understand biblical history without the doctrine of creation. Biblical history is the story of a creator whose aim is to display in all the diamond glory that he has his power and wisdom and wrath and mercy. And that's why we started last week with the doctrine of creation as our first pillar in this series on redemptive history. But now there's another reality. There's another doctrine without which all of biblical history, indeed world history, is utterly unintelligible, and that's the reality of sin and misery. It's often called the doctrine of original sin. And the doctrine in advance is simply this. All people, in all places and all times, sin without exception, save Jesus Christ and have an innate depravity of heart or corruption of nature that inclines them to sin as soon as they are able. And that depravity of heart is owing to the disobedience of Adam and God's judgment upon it. Two things are clear from history. One is that God is the creator and has right as the owner over the world. And the other is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory that God intends to fill the world with. And when these two truths come together, what emerges is redemptive history. The history of God's redeeming, reclaiming, renewing, saving work in the world. The reality of sin and misery makes redemption necessary. The reality of God's creator power and rights makes redemption possible and indeed, I think, necessary and certain. When these two truths are seen clearly, which is what my goal is in these two weeks, then we have our minds set for the possibility of understanding the history of redemption. Last week we looked at creation Today we look at the emergence of sin and misery into the world. And not out of some 
mere intellectual or psychological interest, but because if what the Bible says is true, then everybody in this room has so offended God and His glory that we stand under eternal condemnation unless we find forgiveness in the Redeemer and set ourselves to be vigilant against sin for the rest of our lives. To know the extent and power and origin and nature and consequences of sin will not only help us make sense out of biblical history, it will give us a sense of urgency to flee to Jesus and a sense of urgency in the vigilance with which we array ourselves against sin and strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, there are five things this morning, briefly, that I want us to see about sin. I want us to see the power of sin over all people. And I want us to see the origin of sin. Where did it come from? How did it get to be this way? I want us to see the essence or nature of what sin is as it attacks us and dwells within us. I want us to see the consequences of sin and not wanting to hold anybody off until Christmas. I want in a brief word at the end, to mention the remedy that God has provided. The Bible witnesses explicitly or implicitly everywhere to this fact. Every person that has come into the world except Jesus is a sinner. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee. Romans 3:23. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is it a fluke is it a fluke that the average is 100%? That all men sin just accidentally? Or is this universality of sin not compelling evidence that there is a root problem? There is an innate depravity of heart that inclines us to sin. Last Friday's editorial page carried an editorial by Ellen Goodman, and in it she was pondering the implications of the recent poll which says that 68% of Americans think that we will be in a war within the next few years. 68%. She writes, like history, students who study human saga using war as the highlight, the dateline, the climax of each era, peace seems sometimes in our despair like nothing more than the setup for another war. So today we even wonder whether there is an intrinsic flaw in the human character, whether we are like 
nursery school children who keep building towers and destroying them to build and destroy again. And then she closed with a quote from Albert Einstein. The splitting of the atom has changed everything save man's mode of thinking. Thus we drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. End quote. Now, I don't know whether Albert Einstein thought that that fatal mode of thinking that is utterly unchanged is part of human nature or not. But Ellen Goodman can only bring herself to wonder whether there is an intrinsic flaw in the human character. Those who accept the biblical witness have ceased to wonder. There is definitely a fatal flaw in the human character. Not only have all men everywhere sinned, when they do so, they are acting according to their nature. They are under, as Paul says in Romans 3, 9, the power of sin. It's no fluke that the statistical probability of any human coming into the world sinning is 100%. There never has been any exception except Jesus. We sin because of who we are. We sin because of depraved hearts and corrupt natures and a fatal flaw that is given with our fallen human nature. Here's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He explains that apart from Christ, all people are dead in trespasses and sins. They are sons of disobedience. Among these, he says, we all. Now remember how righteous and religious and good Paul was by Jewish standards. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the body and the mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath, every one of us, no exceptions here today, have a depraved heart and a corrupt natural condition. When Jeremiah said in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt, who can know it? He didn't mean one group among people. He meant people. And when David wept and grieved over his impurity in Psalm 51, it was not a poetic overstatement when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. God testifies to us in the word, therefore, that all people sin, and in doing so, they act according to their nature. The heart of every man, every child, every woman is corrupt, desperately corrupt, Jeremiah says. Who can know? And that's the first thing we need to see about sin. And I think it ought to be a life-gripping, pride-shattering discovery. As I was writing that very sentence, that it ought to be a life-gripping, pride-shattering discovery Friday, 
an interruption came to me. I was working under a lot of pressure. And, and the truth of that sentence saved me from the indignation that rose in my heart against the irritation of that interruption. Here's what my conscience said. Who do you think you are, Piper? To become indignant at a little irritation of an interruption from your fellow man. When your heart is so depraved that you have not only irritated, but positively defamed the glory of God every day of your life, and yet you live. Do you see the moral power of the doctrine of original sin when it wipes us low and humbles us before each other and before God? I could not take up arms against this little irritation without calling down God's wrath upon me for the way I had treated Him. The inevitable question now that rises is, where did all this sin and depravity come from? How did it get to be this way in the world and in our hearts? Now, the Bible does not give us an ultimate answer to that question. But it gives us an answer, a very real answer. The Old Testament answer is given in Genesis 3. The New Testament answer is given in Romans 5. In Genesis, the end of chapter 1, God says when he is finished with creation, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God did not create a depraved man and woman. And in addition, in chapter 2, it says that he provided this man with everything he needed. Absolutely everything. He was not a begrudging God. He was a bountiful God towards his creature, not giving him any stumbling block over which he should fall. How then did this man and this woman disobey and fall into sin and misery? Chapter 3 pictures it as a moment of catastrophic and, to my mind, inexplicable act of disobedience when they ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their innocence vanished. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. And to make the devastation of what happened in that moment plain, the writer of Genesis, unlike Paul, doesn't give us an exposition of what happened. He simply tells the story. The first thing is that they are blaming each other and their relationships are destroyed. The curses of God fall upon them. Their first child is a murderer and a fugitive. Lamech, the great, vengeful, arrogant descendant of Cain, rises. Evil spreads throughout the world until it becomes so horrendous God wipes it out with the flood. And after the flood, what do we find? The people in the plains of Shinar lifting up their hearts and saying, let's build a tower into heaven to make a name for ourselves. That's Genesis' way of describing what happened to the human race 
when Adam and Eve fell. You go to the New Testament, and it's left to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 to put it in an expository form. Let me just highlight the sentences for you in Romans 5:12 following. Verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18. One man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. In verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's pretty clear. As far as it goes, the doctrine is plain. The universality of sin in the world, according to Old and New Testament, is owing to the fact that our first parents fell into disobedience. Now, there are two reasons why I say the answer that the Bible gives to how sin came to be is not ultimate. There are two reasons why I make that statement. And the first is this. Even before the fall in Genesis 3, we encounter this lying, deceiving tempter. And not a word is said where this serpent comes from. Sin is already there before Adam and Eve sin. In the New Testament, this serpent is identified as Satan. Then we get these faint echoes in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2.4 that once there were angels who did not maintain their position and have fallen under the judgment of God and are being kept in nether gloom. But not a word, not a word about the first sin of the universe and how in the world any angelic being living in the presence of the almighty glorious God could cease to delight in God and start to find pleasure in his own self-esteem. That to me is one of the ultimate mysteries of the universe. I'm speechless when I try to think of how that could have come about. We're simply told that it did or that something like it did and the ultimate origin of sin is shrouded in the darkness of eternity past. That's the first reason why I say the, the, uh, the Bible's answer is not ultimate. Here's the second reason. The Bible does not tell us how the sin of Adam is transmitted to his posterity. We're simply told that it is and that we're to trust the righteousness and justice of God. Now, whether God is just in subjecting all people to Adam's condition hangs on this. Does the creator of the universe, the owner, have the right 
to establish such a kind of unity between Adam as the head and his posterity as the body that all the fatal flaw of Adam is passed on from generation to generation. Does God have the right to establish a unity like that in humanity? We don't have time this morning to press and probe very deeply into the mysteries of moral accountability and human depravity. But I want to give you two pointers that have been helpful to me in coping with what is a great stumbling block for many people at this point. Here's the first. I think we can say from Scripture that God did not add anything evil to the human race in the fall. The depravity of the human heart is not owing to an addition, but to a privation. The Apostle John said, I think, concerning the source of our depravity, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. So it seems to me that what happened in the fall is that God took away from man the light by which man could see the glorious desirability of God overall. He withdrew from man what he had originally given to Adam and Eve as a super-added dimension of grace. And without that light, man is merely natural. And left in his merely natural condition, all his desires are swallowed up in darkness and go after other things besides God, after power, after pleasure, after esteem, after status. You know it all from experience, just like I do. God did not add evil desires. He simply put a distance between his glory and its light and man. And the other pointer is this. Our conscience bears unmistakable witness that we are accountable before God. And our experience bears unmistakable witness that we are corrupt before God. That we are prone to wander. We know we are. Now, it may be that in our present condition, as we look through a glass darkly, as Paul says, it may be that we will not achieve a satisfactory explanation of how these two things fit together. That may have to wait until the age to come. But when our experience and our conscience and the word of God testified to us of the truth of these things, we do well to listen and humbly accept. Here's the third thing that I want us to see about sin this morning. What is its essence or nature? Something very, very important is overlooked when we simply say that sin, the first sin that was committed was disobedience and the eating of the forbidden tree. 
What that overlooks is that this tree had a name. And that name has a meaning. And that that meaning interprets the nature of sin. The name of the tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That phrase has a meaning in the Old Testament. And the meaning is that when you have the knowledge of good and evil, you have the capability or the right to determine what is good and evil for yourself or what is helpful and harmful. We find it, for example, in Genesis 3.22. God has the knowledge of good and evil. 1 Kings 3.9, Solomon prays for the knowledge of good and evil that he might rule well. Deuteronomy 1.39, little children don't yet have the knowledge of good and evil. And in 2 Samuel 19.35, senile people don't have it any longer. In other words, the knowledge of good and evil, that very set phrase, is the capacity and the right to decide for oneself what is helpful and harmful, what is good and bad. And therefore, when God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what he was forbidding was not an arbitrary fruit, as if it was just doing what he said not to do that was the sin. That's sinful. But we miss the essential meaning of the sin if we leave it there. The essential meaning is that we were forbidden to take from God what is his right and make it our own. What God was essentially forbidding was an exchange of roles. What he was saying to us is, don't you try to become God. Don't you try to dethrone me. You just stay like a child, depend upon me, trust me to determine what is good for you and bad for you and things will be maximum joy and maximum meaning. Now, in chapter 3 then, Satan knew exactly what he had to do. He knew exactly where the finger had to be put. So he says, you will not die. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's exactly what happened. According to verse 22, God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Man has chosen the way of the prodigal. He does not want to stay under his father's authority. He has decided to determine for himself what is good and what is bad. And the essence of the fall, now mark this because it's alive in every one of us. The essence of the fall and the essence of our depraved heart and the essence of every sin that we commit is the desire not to be dependent. Not to be dependent on God and it shows itself in desires not to be submissive or dependent to people. The other side of the same coin, of course, is that we desire to put ourselves in the place of dependence so that we can have all oh, the folly of sin, the flickering glory, and the little sense of power that comes from self-reliance and self-confidence and self-determination. All our sins without exception flow from the inborn unwillingness to be like a little child 
and to trust our Heavenly Father to decide for us what is good and what is bad and to simply follow in His ways. And now very briefly, the consequences of that event and sin. Three human relations were destroyed in an instant. First, the relation to ourselves. Verse 7 of Genesis 3. The eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were open, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. Rebellion against God in the human heart is so contrary to the way we were created to be that we must constantly be be putting on clothes, makeup, striking poses to convince ourselves that we really aren't naked, helpless little children and quite in control of our destiny. Just look at the advertisements. Read the faces. They're all fig leaves. They're all fig leaves. I'm not a child. I'm not helpless. I'm in control. Second relationship that went. The relationship to God. They heard the sound of the Lord and the man and his wife hid themselves. Oh, how they know what is good for them. They've really blown it. Man has been running with his guilty conscience ever since. Hiding, hiding. Hiding from the living God, running, trying to get away. When a youth has said to his daddy, I don't want your authority, I don't want your counsel, I don't want your help anymore, he can't be comfortable in his father's presence. He runs, and he keeps on running. And we have been homeless fugitives, always on the run ever since. And it's high time some of you give it up and come home third relationship that went down the tubes, our relationship to each other. Listen to this. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit and I ate. If anybody deserves to die, the woman deserves to die. Sweet, tender-hearted, chivalrous, loving husband. It's all over for the human race. In an instant. When the heart is in rebellion against God. We are wholly taken up with self-justification. And when we are taken up with self-justification. People are patsies. And that's all. No matter how close they are to us. And therefore all our relationships have been ruined by the fall. They've all been ruined to ourselves, to God, and to each other. And there's just one other consequence I want to mention. I won't embellish on it in the least. I'll just read it from 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. The Lord Jesus one day will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day 
to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Now this message this morning is all bad news. Not good news, but it's, I trust, true news because it's biblical news. And it is good for us to hear bad news. If we did not believe that the diagnosis was terminal, we would not be very inclined to accept the remedy that God offers. Jesus said, it is not the well who need a physician, it is the sick, and that is everybody. But I'm not going to let anybody go away without the good news this morning. The good news is this. We can sum it up simply. And oh, the glory of a simple sentence. Out of the great love with which he loved us, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sin, our nature and our deeds, so that anybody and everybody and all of us who follow him in the obedience of faith can have peace for their conscience, purpose for their life, and hope for the future, even to eternity. That's the best news in all the world if what I've said in the past 30 minutes is true. And I admonish you and exhort you, I beseech you, quit running and come home, Adam. Come home, Eve. My prayer, Father, as we leave is that the truth of our own depravity and our bent to sinning might humble us deeply. That no one might be able to leave this morning feeling self-sufficient and self-reliant in life, either to cope with sin or to cope with the rigors of the day. But rather, God, may we look away to you and your tremendous mercy and draw us all deeper down, deeper down into the love of Christ, which has no bottom. In his name we pray. Amen.